Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 14, 26-40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or most at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. You may be seated. Well, let's pray together. Father, we love your word, and sometimes it's hard to understand. Give us your Holy Spirit that we might understand, and not only understand, but apply the truth of your word in our life, that we might be found obedient at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Jake. I'm part of the team. I want to add my welcome to Daniel's welcome. Uh, just so you know, we're going to get to the bit that Lydia read there that made you go, what? We're going to get to that bit. Uh, there, there's a lot of work we have to do this morning, and so I just want to assure you we're, we're getting there. I, I want to begin this morning, if you're new or visiting with us, to kind of summarize where we've been thus far to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Next week, we're entering 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus. going to be exciting. This week, we're sort of capping everything off, and Paul's getting really practical. But to understand the text today, we need to understand where we've been so far. So if you've been following, we saw in 1 Corinthians 12 that our God is a gift-giving God. He loves to give gifts to his children. Uh, gifts like singleness. Gifts like marriage. Uh, gifts like certain personality traits. Gifts like uh, prophecy and administration, and speaking in tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Our God is a gift-giving God. And all these gifts, though diverse, proceed from the one God for the one purpose that we might be built up as a church as we together go out in our mission to glorify Him. We were also warned in chapter 12 against bringing our worldly thinking about gifts and, and abilities into our thinking about spiritual gifts in the church. And through the metaphor of the body, we saw that not only does each member have a role to play, you have a role to play, but it seems that the gifts that appear to us at least as insignificant are in fact, as Paul says in verse 22 of 12, indispensable, indispensable. 
Then as we come to chapter 13, Paul famously talks about love. Why? Because God's love, a love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, is to shape, in fact, must shape how we use the gifts. If love does not shape our use of the gifts, they are, in fact, useless. And as Heath memorably told us, torture, (laughs) insufferable. Now in chapter 14, after a brief discussion distinguishing prophecy from tongues, as Paul looks to conclude this section concerning spiritual gifts, he once again tells us in the words of Bible scholar Claire Smith that like with God's love, God's own character is to shape our participation and use of the gifts he gives. God's character is to shape our participation, our use of the gifts that he gives. And what do we learn about God's character in our passage? That God is a God of order and peace. Of order and peace. At the very center of our passage today, Paul writes this, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Our ordered gatherings reflect the God, not of confusion, but of peace. So this morning, two very simple things I want us to see. First, our orderly God. And second, our orderly gatherings. Okay, you with me? Still a bit scared from the reading? We're going to do this. Our orderly God. Again, we read, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is a God of order. And I think when some of us hear that, we equate order uh, with uh, authoritarianism, right? Or we equate order with sort of a gray, drab, communist architecture, right? Order. Order, but no creativity. So we swing the pendulum. Maybe you envision God as more of a free-spirited hippie, right? Where anything goes, truth is self-determined. Creativity, sure, but no order. And interestingly, I think in the first few pages of the Bible, we find worlds that reflect these two poles. Order without creativity and creativity without order. First, we find a world of creativity without order. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he writes this, Freedom, or creativity, without order was the world before the flood, a state of anarchy and chaos that, that Thomas Hobbes famously described as the war of every man against every man, in which life is nasty, brutish, and short. He goes on to say that is the world today in Syria, Iraq, Nigeria, Somalia, Mali, the Central African Republic, and other conflict zones elsewhere, a world of failed and failing states and societies racked and wrecked by lawlessness. That is freedom without order, what the Torah calls a world filled with violence that made God regret that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his very heart. Creativity, freedom without order. A few pages on, a few chapters later, however, we find Order without freedom, without creativity. Again, Sachs continues. The alternative was a world of order without freedom, epitomized, he says, in the Torah by the Tower of Babel and the Egypt of the Pharaohs, civilizations that achieved greatness at the cost of turning the mass of humanity into slaves. 
I think much of our modern cultural disagreement stems from the fact that unconvinced we can have both order and creativity or order and freedom, we choose to throw our lot in with a creativity without order crowd of Genesis 6 or the order without creativity crowd of Genesis 11 and, and Exodus. But both, we have to see, Genesis 6 and Genesis 11 are distortions, half-truths, of the initial creation we find in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1. I, I know you're already past Genesis 1 in your Bible reading plan, and so I'm sorry. But if you can go back there with me for a second, I want you to see a few things. Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it's really interesting. Because in Genesis 1, we find, I think, tremendous creativity. In fact, excessive creativity. In verse 21, we read that God made every living creature that moves, every winged bird. He didn't make bird or creature. He made every winged creature, every animal that moved. Later on, God commands Adam to rule over all the various wild animals. In verse 29, he gives Adam uh, the authority to eat every tree with seed in its fruit. And, and over and over again, this repetition of all and every in Genesis 1, which we find a lot of, is meant for us to see that the tremendous variety and diversity and beauty in God's creation. And so Christopher Watkin, he's a, he's a scholar, a Bible teacher, he writes this, God has not created a world with just enough sustenance, variety, and abundance for survival. But God, listen, Christ said, he created a superabundant world fit to foster the flourishing of his creatures. Baked into creation is a tremendous, even excessive, creativity. But Genesis 1 also tells us it's a world of tremendous order. Of order. And so if you look at verse 2, we read that before God speaks the cosmos into existence, we read this. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The world was formless and empty. In the original Hebrew, uh, tohu vabohu. I don't know about you, but just hearing that gives me the creeps, right? Tohu vabohu. Formless and empty. Tohu vabohu. It's the monster of chaos. As a child, I can remember, I was a strange kid, so this is going to be a strange story. But as a child, I remember not being afraid of the night because of monsters under my bed, but thinking about a cold and empty and dark, and dark eternity to which I would return. I was afraid of the tohu vabohu. In fact, when God's people are in exile in Jeremiah, he describes the situation like, like the undoing of creation. Like things undoing themselves, being without form and without meaning, without content. Tohu vabohu. But into the tohu vabohu, God speaks. He brings order out of chaos. He brings peace. Days are marked out. They no longer all just blur together. Days are marked out. Uh, the abundant and diverse plants are nonetheless separated and marked according to their kind. Uh, throughout Genesis 1, we find that phrase, according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind. And, as we'll relate to what Paul says later in our text, God creates us male and female. 
there's order. And the refrain we hear over and over again as God brings order out of the chaos, as God takes the dreaded tohu vavohu and brings it into order, is his declaration that it was good. It's good. All of this means, to, to quote Christopher Watkin again, the universe of Genesis 1 sits at the sweet spot on the spectrum of complete order on one side and unfettered creativity on the other. Where order does not drain creativity and creativity does not drain order. God's world is a creative order. Listen, all snowflakes are the same and all snowflakes are different. All insects are insects, yet there are around 900,000 species of insects. All humans are humans, but no two humans are identical. Friends, the message of Genesis 1 is that we don't need to choose between Genesis 6, anarchy, or Genesis 11, totalitarianism. The world God made is a world of created order. Now Paul is going to take this big truth, this, this huge lofty truth about our world, about God's character and the world he made, and apply it in just a moment to our gatherings as a church. But before we move too quickly past this, I want to just speak to you individually for a second. Take this big thing and bring it down to your life for a moment. For, for some of you, the world is chaotic darkness right now. All around you seems to lurk the, the dreaded tohu vabohu. This could be for many reasons. I don't presume to know them all. But perhaps, perhaps that's because you've ignored God's orderliness. Perhaps it's because you balked at your created intent. You've ignored his orderly plan for a flourishing life. You've drank deeply of the cultural abhorrence of order and structure. Friends, God comes in Jesus, as John 1 tells us, just as he did in Genesis 1. Jesus comes as the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus wants to take you out of the tohu vabohu and put you on solid ground as you trust him and obey his commands. He's speaking to you this morning, ordering your chaos. Still for others, God seems dreary and gray. All rules, all law, no beauty. And let me remind you, God is a God of beauty. All beauty belongs to him. He lays claim and ownership to all that is good and beautiful and right in this world. All that is truly beautiful in this life, in creation, in people, in good art, in good jokes, all proceeds from the infinite beauty and creativity of our beautiful and creative God. Our God is not the God of blood or of communist architecture. Only when we recognize that all that is beautiful proceeds from his infinite beauty does our world begin to transform from, from grayscale to technicolor. In Jesus, and in Jesus alone, we are now able to see his beautifully diverse world with people, plants, animals, stars, according to their rightful, ordered purpose. Our God is a God of creative order. He is an orderly God. It should not surprise us then that as we gather to worship him, we find that the same creative order is to be reflected in our gatherings. So the practicalities of our gatherings that we now turn, this is point two, our orderly gatherings. 
Verse 26 reads like this. Look at it with me. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Let's pause. Let's pause. Before we talk about order, let me just highlight once more what we've already seen. Order does not mean one person use their, uses their gifts and everybody else watches. Order does not mean that our gathering is a carefully crafted Broadway show you just come and consume with you know jazz hands and lights and smoke machines. Verse 26 imagines each person uh, pulling into that, that parking lot behind London Drugs, asking the question, Lord, what do you have for me this morning to bring to your church to serve your church? Verse 26 imagines as you walk from your house in the neighborhood, you're praying, you're asking the Lord, Lord, I want to build up the church. What, what do you want me to bring? Is it a tongue? Is it an interpretation? Is it a prophecy? Paul does not envision the Sunday morning gathering as a spectator sport, but one where we both prepare for and participate in. We prepare for it and we participate in it. And, and I thought about this this week. Have you ever thought about preparing for a gathering? Like athletes will, will prepare, will rest, will train, right? Will get massage to, to prepare for a big game, right? And students will prepare for a big test, right? Block off time, whole weeks even, to prepare for that big test. What makes the gathering any less important? In fact, I think theologically we'd all agree it's much more important. Do you prepare for the gathering? Do you prepare to come to use the gifts as you build up God's people and participate in it? When you do prepare, and when you do participate, Paul says it should be in an orderly way. And now we get to that bit of our passage today that you've been thinking about ever since Lydia read it. And I actually think this is the heart, that this orderly participation is the heart of what's going on in these often misunderstood verses. Look at your Bible with me. The second half of verse 33 says this. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Uh, a few months ago now, we talked about 1 Corinthians 11, where we unpacked in more time and more fullness the relationship between a husband and wife and what we believe about that as a church. I'd encourage you to go listen to that sermon. This is not a sermon we're going to unpack entirely a complementary male and female relationships. Let me begin by saying, though, I think there are a few good ways that people have and can read this text. In fact, I changed my mind over the course of this week about how to read this text. And how I'm proposing that this text is read is but one of those good options. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I'd love to chat with you about the other potential good options about reading this text. But as far as I know, I think these verses are best understood like this. I think Paul, it's on the screen behind me, is specifically addressing wives in the Corinthian church 
who were disrupting the Corinthian gathering and so bringing shame upon their husbands. So I, I want to unpack that now. You probably have a few questions. The most pressing question is, Jake, can women speak in our gatherings? And on one hand, the answer is obvious. Lydia read scripture for us this morning. Liv and Mel sang this morning. Right? The answer is, should be obvious to you. We, we say yes. And we say yes because earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes explicit mention of women both praying and prophesying in the church. So we have this earlier, even in 1 Corinthians. Okay? Also, the context of 1 Corinthians 14 is that Paul is writing to a disordered church to address disordered speech. His appeal to the law, notice that, he appeals to the law which I take to mean the created order in Genesis 2, and his apostolic decree that this is the way it happens in all the churches of the saints, is to say this, listen, there is disruptive speech happening by wives that is undermining the ordered equality among sexes. Because as a church, we do believe that men and women, yes, created equal, also, yes, Occupy unique roles and complementary roles in the home and in the church. Again, if you have questions about that, we have a sermon on 1 Corinthians 11. But that likely leads you to a few more questions. Here's another one. Jake, why specifically wives when the text says, more generally, women? The word we find here for wives can be translated either way. And typically the context helps determine which word to use. And, and here I think wives is the better translation because I think it makes the best sense of verse 35 where Paul says, look at your Bibles, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Further, if you've been with us throughout 1 Corinthians so far, you know that Paul has had the marriage relationship in view this entire time. Next question, well, Jake, how are they being disrupted? We don't actually know. Admittedly, this is the weak point of my position. But some scholars have suggested a few things. I'll list them here. Some have suggested that in the first century Roman world, the liberated Roman woman was really a big deal. And they were asserting their authority in new, perhaps disorderly ways. Others have suggested that wives, though genuinely and inquisitively were asking questions, they were doing so disruptively. Perhaps specifically during the time of the weighing of prophecies in the church. Still, others have suggested, well, perhaps wives were questioning their woman's hus other women's husbands. That one scholar, Christopher Forbes, he writes this. He says, there existed in the Greco-Roman world in the first century a strong prejudice against women speaking in public and especially against their speaking to other women's husbands. In a society with strictly defined gender and social roles and a strong view of the rights of the man over his wife, such behavior was treated as totally inappropriate. Now, I think it's fair to say we don't live in the same world as the first century Greco-Roman world. Whatever the concern is, we do know, however, that I think based on the flow of argumentation in this section, Paul's concern is that nothing should be done that would get in the way of building up, building up one another in love. And you may have one more question, which I think is probably the most important. Well, then what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us today? Again, I think we would all agree 
that we don't live, we should agree on this at least, that we don't live in the first century Greco-Roman world. We don't live with the same standards of what constitutes honor and dishonor, what constitutes honor and shame. And so given that I'm arguing that Paul's decree that the shameful act is culturally located, that should a wife today question another woman's husband, that it would not be particularly shameful in our culture, I'm not sure verses 33 to 35 mean anything more than don't be disruptive during the gatherings. Don't be disruptive during the gathering. So women, don't be disruptive during the gathering. Men, don't be disruptive during the gathering. Also babies, don't be disruptive during the gathering. That's a joke. We needed that. Maybe just I needed that. Honestly, if, if this is the takeaway that I'm, I'm getting from this passage, and it is, I don't think disruption during the gathering is actually really a problem for us. Now, I have friends, and I know people who work in cultures and in places where disruptive outbursts are a real thing, or a real thing. But that's not us. If anything, I, I would appreciate a good disruptive outburst here and there just to prove that you're still, like, alive and, like, listening, we don't struggle with this. But before we feel like we're off the hook, I think the heart of the problem that Paul is addressing is still very relevant for us today. Because at the heart of it, when someone is being disruptive during the gathering, what's happening? What's happening? I think it's this. This person is no longer being driven by the law of love expressed in 1 Corinthians 13, they are not looking to build up the church. No, they are looking to make themselves look good. To make themselves look smart. To draw attention to themselves. See, disordered gatherings begin with disordered hearts. That is true of gatherings that are disruptively loud and, here's where it cuts us, disruptively quiet. Wait, wait what do you mean by that? Disruptively quiet. Look at the end of our passage today. I want us to see how Paul ends this section. He says, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, I'm not one to brag, but we are pretty good at verse 40. Like We're, we're pretty good at that. All things being done decently and in order, check, right? No one's ever come into our gathering, as far as I know, and been like, whoa, this thing is out of control. Like, this is, this is just nuts for me. I, I haven't received that feedback. If you have that feedback for me, love to talk after the gathering. But typically, that's not where we err, right? Am, am I, we're all together on this, okay? But, but verse 39, earnestly desire to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. Listen, here's the point. Failing to practice the diverse grace gifts that God has given us is also a failure to allow God's character to shape our gatherings. Do you see that? Failing to practice the diverse grace gifts that God has given us is also a failure to allow God's character to shape our gatherings. 
It's as much of a failure as a disordered and chaotic gathering. And so I want you to know this. In case it needs to be said, we did not spend like four months in these two chapters talking about spiritual gifts only to not see or smell or hear of spiritual gifts ever again in the life of this church. We, we didn't do that. Spiritual gifts are not going anywhere. If you were hoping we just kind of sweep this under the, the carpet as a sort of anomaly in the life of the church, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Spiritual gifts are not going anywhere. Which means we better learn how to use them in an orderly way in our gatherings. Specifically, as Paul mentions here, we better learn how to use both tongues and prophecy in our gatherings. And so first up, tongues. If you're just joining us, again, you came on a heck of a Sunday. We have previously defined tongues as the following. This spirit-empowered ability to speak a language, either earthly or heavenly, not previously known or learned by the speaker. If you're like, what does that mean? November 13th, Paul preached a great sermon on tongues. Let me encourage you, go listen to it. But that's what we define tongues as. And to summarize what Paul said, we said that tongues are not a sign of our salvation. There is no second baptism in the Spirit. There is one baptism in the Spirit, and we can be filled a bunch of times after that as we walk with Jesus. Tongues are not a sign of our salvation. Second, though uninterpreted tongues primarily edify the self, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Being edified in the Lord inevitably leads to the overflow of you edifying others. And so in your private prayer, speak in tongues. Be edified as you edify others. That said... Interpreted tongues are better. They're better. They not only edify you, but the whole church as well. And our passage today makes a few other things clear also. First, that the gift of tongues is not an uncontrollable, ecstatic utterance that may have been common amongst the pagans in Paul's day. Let me, let me just say that again. The use of tongues as this like uncontrollable, ecstatic utterance has no roots in Christianity, but in the pagan culture of Paul's day which is a bit of an indictment. In verse 27, Paul envisions a tongue being given each in turn, he says. In verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Second, there are multiple contexts where the gifts of tongue, the gift of tongues is to be used privately as you saw earlier in chapter 14, and now publicly, if there is an interpretation. And by the way, maybe you're a private tongue speaker right now. Maybe it's part of your prayer life and you're nervous. You're like, oh no, now I got to do this in front of the whole church? No. Not all people who pray in tongues in private will be called to a public ministry of tongues. It's not, it's not a foregone conclusion in that way. Third, Paul says, verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. In other words, not only must tongues be interpreted in our public gatherings, but tongue speaking and interpretation must not dominate the gathering. We're not going to be here, well, we don't have the space until we have until like two o'clock anyways. We're not going to be here all day with just tongues and interpretation, and then tongues and interpretation. It's not going to happen. Paul doesn't want this gift to crowd out the other gifts. 
We can think specifically of Corinth where this was happening, right? People had valued the gift of tongues over and above the rest as a super spiritual sign. And Paul's saying, no, it has a place, but in its place, in its order. And so what does that mean for us? I'm going to put on the screen a guideline for how the gift of tongues and its interpretation will play out at Christ City Church. Let me preface all this by saying this. 1 Corinthians 14 is all we have on tongues. So you're like, there's got to be more. That's it. That's what we've got. And some things are very clear in 1 Corinthians 14, right? Things like what? Tongues need to be interpreted in the gathering. That's very clear. Tongues should be done in an orderly way. That's very, very clear. Tongues shouldn't dominate the gathering. That's very, very clear. But, but Paul does not spell out for our church today a step-by-step guide to tongues and their interpretation. Uh, so what you see now is our best attempt as elders to live out what we think the Bible is saying, okay? If you want to remember this, again, take a picture. First thing is this. Before we gather, this whole thing starts before we gather. Saturday night, before we gather, ask the Lord that he would give you either a tongue or an interpretation to be shared during our gathering for the building up of the church. Before we gather. If during the gathering you sense the Lord put a tongue on your heart to share with the church for its building up, come speak to an elder here at the front. Now it says elder on the screen. My hope is that in time we can develop a team of godly and mature individuals to discern these things. There's no explicit elder command uh, in the scriptures, and so we want to build a team of people using their gifts to discern these tongues, and eventually we'll see in a bit prophecies as well. But come speak to the elder at the front. Again, not wanting to forbid speaking in tongues, together we'll discern when is the appropriate time to share the tongue. And then the tongue speaker will present it to the church, and then we'll wait for God to bring an interpretation. Simple enough. We'll wait. Wait, now, now we won't wait forever. We won't wait forever. This would seem to detract or go against Paul's point of only having two to three tongue speakers in a gathering, but we'll wait. And this will happen, max, two to three times on a Sunday. And you might ask, well, Jake, how do we know if there is someone to interpret? In Corinth, it would have been easier. Let me just confess. Their gatherings, probably max 50 people, they knew the spiritual gifts of the body that were there. They knew who the interpreters were, who the tongue speakers were, who the prophesiers were. They, they, they just knew that. And, and so if that person was absent that day, well, perhaps they wouldn't give the tongue. Also, it could be that as people filed into their gathering room, which again was much smaller, tongue speakers connected with the interpreters to see if they got anything that day, and together to be, okay, like, is this something for us as a body? And they determined that together. I don't know. At the end of the day, tongue speaking and its interpretation, like all spiritual gifts, requires great faith. 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 Faith that God will act according to his word and that he desires, he truly desires to build up his church. And realistically, because our gathering, you might not feel like it's super large, but historically speaking, it is quite large. Realistically, the best place then to use these gifts is yes, on Sunday morning, don't hear me wrong, but perhaps primarily in our community groups. Daniel's talked about them already this morning. You should be a part of a community group. 
Not just because you can go and learn about the Bible, which you can. Not just because you can go and get good food, which you can. But also because this, I think, is the primary place for the use of our gifts for the edification of the body. It's in community groups. Community groups. So that's what tongues looks like in our gatherings. What about prophecy? Paul writes this. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And he says, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Again, if you're new, we defined Old Testament prophecy. There's a sermon about this in our archives. The kind that we get to do as this. New Testament prophecy is telling something, sorry, that God has spontaneously brought to mind for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation of the church. That's what New Testament prophecy is. We're not speaking scripture. I'm not getting up and saying, thus saith the Lord. No, there is a marked difference between the words of the capital A apostles and the capital P prophets and my prophetic word to you or your prophetic word to us. Again, let me encourage you, October 23rd, we've got a sermon on that. But unique to our text today, we see that prophecy like tongues, is controllable. Again, in verse 32, I think, Paul says this, and the spirits of the prophets, right, are subject to prophets, which means this. Prophecy is not a matter of like your eyes rolling in the back of your head and God just kind of taking over your body and you're like this and like it's just like coming out of you as some sort of like uncontrollable ecstatic sort of experience. That's not biblical prophecy. You've been given the spirit of what? Self-control. This is a dynamic interplay between person and God. He's using you. Prophets can stop and start. We know this because in the example of verse 30, look, look at your Bibles. In verse 30, Paul gives an example of a prophet giving their prophetic word, someone else indicating that, no, I have something from the Lord. That person stops what they're saying, and the other person goes and, and continues to give their prophetic word, which should also tell you the value of prophecy in the church today. It's encouraging. It's a building, it's consoling, but clearly, if it can be interrupted, if it can be cut off, it's not on par with the Word of God. Do you see that? Yeah? Like tongues, prophecy should not continue unceasingly. It seems as if two or three prophets speak consecutively, and that this is the max before a time of weighing begins. Finally, for the first time in 1 Corinthians, we find this idea of weighing, weighing prophecy. We've already talked about this a few months ago, but weighing involves this. Again, it'll be on the screen. Asking these sorts of questions when we weigh prophecy as a church. Does it line up with Scripture? Does it line up with the apostolic tradition handed down to us? That's what we're asking. Does the Word tend to edify and build up? Right? Now, it might not be obvious how that happens, but does it tend towards that? If the Word is predictive, right, this is going to happen, does it happen? Does it pass the test of love? Of love. Is this a power grab? A prestige move? Not really about the church at all. And does the prophecy pass the test of the community? So, so prophets don't rubber stamp themselves. They don't approve themselves. The others, not the prophets, weigh what is being said. You and me. And by the way, this is the same criteria we use to judge and to assess the interpretation of tongues. It works for both of those. 
So, and mercifully, this is the last slide this morning, and then you go for lunch. What does this mean for us? Again, informed by the scripture, informed by its commands and its priorities, here's our best attempt as elders to create a structure where prophecy can be a regular occurrence in our Sunday morning gatherings. First thing is this. Like with tongues, before we gather, ask that the Lord would give you a prophetic word to be shared during our gathering for the building up of your body. If during the gathering, you sense you have a prophecy to share with the church, come speak to an elder or in the future, a team of people designated for this at the front. Not wanting to despise prophecies together, we'll discern when is the appropriate time to share the word. And, and who is to share the word? The prophecy will then be presented to the church. We'll then spend some time weighing the word. And it could be at that time that someone stands up and says, yeah, I think this is good because of this. And someone else says, I think it's good because of this. And, and we weigh it together, right? We're all called to that weighing process. And finally, we're going to limit prophetic words to two or three consecutive words in order to be able to truly weigh what is being said. People just give prophetic words, you know, one after the other for, you know, 30, 40 of them. It's going to be tough to weigh what's being said there. There's some order here. So, Christy, here's how we'll end. It is, it is one thing to lay out a map of where we want to go, it is another thing to begin the journey, right? It's one thing to lay out a map. Here's where we want to go. It's another thing to start doing this. And I just want to encourage you. I've seen this in my community group this past fall. It required us as a community group stepping out in faith, being like, I don't know if this is what the Lord is leading me in, but I, I'm sensing something like this. Or... Like, I have the gift of tongues. I'm going to just speak it out. If someone interprets, that's great. If not, like, okay, wasn't for tonight. This is going to require faith and boldness and uncomfortability. And so let me encourage you, begin practicing in your community groups. Begin practicing now in those communities you have available to you. See, Paul concludes this entire section from chapter 12 to 14 on spiritual gifts with this apostolic show of force. This apostolic show of force. He says in verse 36, Or was it from you, Corinthians, that the word of God came? Was it from you, Christ City, that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? The answer, of course, is no and no. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are command of the Lord. Think about this for all that we've been through so far, from 12 to 14. The things that I'm writing to you are command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. For however long the Lord has us here until he returns, God's never-changing word handed down to us by the prophets and the apostles will always be our guide and our guardrail in practicing the spiritual gifts. That is our commitment to you as elders of this church, that God's word will always be our guide and our guardrail in practicing the spiritual gifts. And at the end of the day, we truly believe that these gifts have been given for our good and the good of this world that does not yet know him. Friends, let us be obedient to God's word. And what we will find that, what we will find is that in obedience, there is tremendous blessing. Would you pray with me? So, Father, take us and use us. 
use the diverse spiritual gifts you've given to this body that we might be built up. That our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family who doesn't know you might come to see you and know you. As Paul says earlier in chapter 14, that, that they'd come into a gathering and the secrets of their heart would be disclosed and they would worship God. Lord, guide us by your Spirit. Keep us tethered to your Son, Jesus. Keep us tethered to your Word. We need your help, Lord. We're so thankful that you've promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Indeed, you are with us this morning. It's in that confidence we pray. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.